You're listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine, a roundup of this week's leading stories and industry comment from the world of investor relations. Direct from our central London studio, here's your host, Lori Havelock. This week on the Ticker Podcast, Proxy Access hits the headlines again, Honeywell's Mark Macaluso on a complicated story, and the shortlists for this year's IR Magazine Awards Canada are revealed. Welcome back to the Ticker Podcast, your beloved roundup of the top news and headlines from around the world of investor relations. And we're back this week with Tim Human, Garnet Roach, and Condice de Montpetit. Hello. Hello again. Well, this week on the Ticker Podcast, it would be remiss of us not to mention the passing of a musical legend this week. David Bowie died peacefully on January the 10th, mere days after releasing his 26th and final studio album, Black Star. There's nothing we can really say here on the ticker that's not been said or written already, except that we were reminded this week by Condice, actually, of the availability of Bowie bonds back in the 90s. Yes, pioneered in 1997 by investment banker David Pullman, keen investors could own a slice of a security backed by current and future revenues of David Bowie records, which were released before 1990. Um, the bonds were bought for $55 million by the Prudential Insurance Company of America. They paid an interest rate of 7.9% and had an average life of 10 years, which at the time was a better rate of return than a 10-year treasury note. But I don't think the bonds ended up particularly well, did they, Condice, in the end? No, unfortunately, the um, the sales of uh, CDs uh, dropped dramatically because of, um, uh, you know, you could da- download uh, music over the internet with Napster. So um, the bond was eventually um, downgraded to junk by Moody's. That's a very strong word to use of David Bowie's back catalogue, I think. Junk. I don't think that's quite appropriate at all, Moody's. Yeah, maybe junk, but it was a fun idea. I mean, Yeah, absolutely. I can't think of any other musicians or even artists who you can buy a bond in at all. Yeah, I think James Round also issued um, a bond for his CD or record sales. James Brown? Yeah. Oh, that would be a fun bond to have, wouldn't it? It would be very, quite volatile, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they're targeted at the, you know, the fan, a bit like when football clubs were listed on the stock market. Oh yeah, um, you know it's a way to give give your give someone you support a bit of extra money. You're not really expecting a good return from it. Actually, one of the first stories I wrote for IR Magazine, I think, for the website was about a um, a security that was based on the the career proceeds of American football players. So you can invest in your favorite, one. yeah, you mm. can invest in your favorite player, which I guess would be a fan thing. But I think you know the the thought that you're actually funding their their sporting prowess would be quite a nice one to hold on to. Um, but anyway, David will be sorely missed, dare I say, for his contributions to the arts rather than the capital markets. But um, moving on to Tim, and you've got an update for us about proxy access. Are more companies coming under pressure or are investors set for some golden years? And there's a little bit of a theme to the links this week. Yes, this week we've seen the uh, New York City controller uh, Scott Stringer initiate the second year of his boardroom accountability project, which is aiming to roll out proxy access across the US market. Uh, We covered this briefly last week, but for those who aren't aware, proxy access refers to a mechanism allowing investors who meet certain criteria to put their own director nominations on the company ballot at the annual shareholder meeting. And what's happened in the last year in terms of proxy access? Well, investors have been calling for proxy access in the US for many years, um, in some cases decades. But 2015 was a real breakthrough year for the campaign, uh, during which more than 100 companies either adopted proxy access after receiving a shareholder proposal or brought it in proactively. Notably, many of the 2015 adoptees changed their bylaws in November and December, so very recently, and that was because there were looming deadlines for annual meeting proposals and they wanted to get in with their bylaw changes before they received proposals from investors on this issue. 
Investors want to roll this out across the whole market. Uh, Stringer has said he could target half the S&P 500 within two years. So this is something all US companies will be thinking about at the moment. Well, if proxy access is inevitable, what are some of the issues that companies will be facing? Yes, I mean, assuming it's, it's coming for your company, then, then the, what companies have left to focus on is the criteria. In what form are they going to implement proxy access? Most follow the approach of saying for investors to be eligible to use proxy access, they need to uh, hold at least 3% of the company's shares and have held those shares for at least three years. But there is more wiggle room for companies around other parts of the criteria. For example, the number of shareholders who can group up to make the ownership threshold and the proportion of the board that investors can nominate. How have companies been taking advantage of this, uh, as you put it, wiggle room then? Well, there's a couple of examples of what investors have asked for on one hand and then what companies have done on the other. So quite a lot of investors would like there to be no limit on the number of shareholders who can group up to meet the ownership threshold. And they'd also like to be able to nominate 25% of the board. However, quite a lot of proxy access bylaw changes have put a limit on the number of shareholders, for example, 20. And they've also said that investors can only nominate up to 20% of the board, so a little bit lower. What will be interesting to see uh, this year is is what forms of proxy access are deemed uh, broadly acceptable. I think, you know, we get the impression from what companies are doing and the reactions of investors that when it comes to the ownership threshold and the holding period, those are pretty non-negotiable. But when it comes to, you know, the number of shareholders who can group up and the proportion of the board that can be nominated, there is a bit more wiggle room there for companies to take advantage of. Well, it's an issue I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about in the uh, coming months, but we're going to move on to Garnet now, who's been looking at some of the world's IR heroes, there's another one, um, and you've caught up with some, I don't think this one works, young Americans, um, and they're about their complicated corporate story. I couldn't possibly speculate on the age of um, <laughs> Mark Macaloso, but uh, I have been speaking to him. He's the head of IR at Honeywell. Um, and so, as you mentioned at the beginning, I've, I've been speaking with some of the top-ranking IR teams from across the world for a feature in our spring edition. Mark Macaloso, head of IR at Honeywell, is one of the people that I've been talking to. And he rightly pointed out when I spoke to him that the New Jersey headquartered conglomerate has the potential to be quite a complicated story. He says, quote, we make a $40 billion, highly diverse and global company easy for investors to understand and digest. He also talked about the company's success with its five-year target for sales and segment margins across the company as a whole and also for each strategic business unit. And there's a lot of those. Uh, Something that Mark says few other companies in Honeywell's peer group do. He says, quote, our first five-year plan issued in 2010 was viewed as aggressive, with many investors believing it represented stretch goals for the company. So the job fell to Mark and his IR team, made up of four IR professionals in total, to bring the buy side and the sell side around to the company's vision. Well, I imagine that hitting these stretch targets would certainly help their cause. Exactly. And uh, Honeywell largely did hit them, says Mark, um, adding that the company's total shareholder return during that five during that initial five-year period was over 185%, fueling investor confidence in the company. He adds that, quote, our ability to issue long-term guidance and to show that we can meet or achieve the targets is truly a differentiator for Honeywell and makes what we do in investor relations unique. And did you talk to Mark about um, IR lessons? I believe you were phoning around some of the top IROs and asking for their best IR lessons they've ever learned. Did you get anything from him? I was. I was trying to get a few tips on kind of what people would want to pass on and what they thought were the most important lessons that they'd learned during their careers. And so Elizabeth Sun from Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, who I talked about here before Christmas, um, she said that her greatest lesson has been learning how to manage expectations, while Mark says that for him it's all about preparation. 
He says, quote, you need to be prepared days, weeks or even months in advance for everything. We have a rigorous planning process for everything we do and are always looking for ways to do things smarter, not necessarily faster, but better. He also adds that, as Honeywell's chairman and CEO Dave Cote always says, Honeywell does this both right and fast. There'll be more from Mark in the full profile coming out both online and in the spring issue, as well as profiles from the rest of the global top 10, from Denmark's Novo Nordisk to Brazil's Croton and Intel as well. Yes, indeed. There'll be more info in the spring issue, which should be, well, we've just actually sent all the copy in, so it should be coming to you sometime in spring, I guess, would be the, as suggested by the title. Um, but from one set of IR heroes to another, and Condice, I believe you have in your hands the shortlist for this year's Canada Awards. Right. Tell me... Are there any ch- 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 changes at the top? And who will be dancing in the streets of Toronto on the night of the awards itself? Very good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, we have a challenger in the pole position, um, Canadian Pacific Railway, which is nominated for nine awards, including uh, the Holy Grail, the, the Grand Prix for large caps, Best RO, Best IR by CEO, Best Financial Reporting, Best Investor Meetings, Best Crisis Management, Best in Sector, and um, Best IR by a Canadian company in the US market. Impressive. Definitely. No wonder the firm's also shortlisted, I think, for the Most Progress Award this year. Is that right? Yes, it is. And um, it's going to be hard to believe, but there is another company with nine uh, nominations. It's CN. Uh, Actually, they've been in the top three for the past couple of years. The firm will be competing with Canadian Pacific Railway for the Grand Prix, the Best IRO, Best IR by CEO, Best Financial Reporting, Best Investor Meetings, Best in Sector, and Best in U.S. Market. And um, it's also nominated for the Best CFO Award, Best Use of Technology, and the Best Corporate Governance. Quite a lot. Yeah, bit of a haul there. But what of the top winner from the past five years? Or, I mean, how many is it, Tim, actually? It's been a while. <clears throat> I've lost count. TD Bank um, still has pretty honorable prospects. Uh, it's been nominated for six awards this year. The Grand Prix, the CEO and CFO Awards, uh, Best Use of Technology, Best corporate governance and best in sector. I think that's still that's still pretty respectable. And what about first time appearances at the awards? Who's making up them? We have four companies shortlisted for uh, best hour for an, an IPO. Um, so this year's absolute beginners are Kara Operations, Seven Generations Energy, Stingray Digital Group, and Tidewater Midstream and Infrastructure. So yeah, let's stay tuned for a report from the award ceremony in Toronto, as they say, on February the fourth. Yes, as um, Ben Affleck reminds us in Argo, the true Canadians do not pronounce the T. It's Toronto. Is that true? Yep. Ah. Well, the, um, as Condice has mentioned, the awards are being held in Toronto, Canada, on Thursday, the February the 4th. You can find some more information at the IR Magazine events site, which is irmagazine.com forward slash events, where you can see the, the whole shortlist for companies who might be up for an award and book a seat if you'd like one. Do stay tuned for the report and more news about our other awards around the world later in the year. As I said previously, irmagazine.com is the place to find everything you could possibly hope to know. You can also find us on Twitter at irmagazine or send us an email on editorial at irmagazine.com if you have any questions or comments to pass on or a couple of David Bowie puns for me to include in next week's links. For now, though, that is all we have time for. Thanks, everyone, for being here this week. Thank you Cheers, very Laurie. much, Laurie. And we will see you in about seven days. Bye. 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 You've been listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine. For free access to all the latest global investor relations news and analysis, register at irmagazine.com or download the app. 